welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode 16 of season 2, Conversation with Mike Shaw. Mike is, you probably recognize his name if you've been reading the Climbing Zine for a while. He's one of the most prolific contributors on the photography side of things. He's been contributing probably since we moved to Color Photos. He's been a longtime friend of mine, as we discussed in the episode, we're Indian Creek friends. Uh, we met out there, and our friendship has played out over the years there. And of course, we're not just friends there, we're friends in the world. But it's really he's really one of those people that um, my friendship began there, and it continues to unfold there, and it's really a great thing. I think this is very uh, reminiscent of like a campfire conversation. We recorded it out there, so you might hear a little bit of wind. You might hear a dog barking here and there. But I really enjoyed this talk with Mike, and Mike actually um, is working on an essay. He's always done photography, but he's, he's working on a little writing for an essay in volume 22 as well. So look forward to that. The number one way to support this podcast is by picking something up. We have a variety of merch options in our store from our Dirtbag State of Mind merch. We also have books and zines, of course, and in your show notes, you'll find a 15% off discount link. Really appreciate everyone who supported the store and the zine over the last year and a half. There's been so many wild cards with the industry and with printing costs and this and that. To have a reliable base of customers is really the best way we can stay in business. We're super grateful for all our sponsors and grateful for everyone who just picks up something here and there. Even if you just buy a sticker, you're supporting us and you're keeping this dream alive and it's really become a multimedia dream and we're moving into the podcast space we're in the print space and we're working on more films and more books as well to keep you all entertained and keep those brains getting fed hey everyone tommy caldwell here you know everyone at least in the climbing world these days is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally to live a less impactful life and one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint lower their chemical usage make their products out of recycled materials make products that just don't wear out and you know the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Hey, this is Chad Rich. I'm the editor and producer of this podcast. We can't bring you this audio art without your support and support from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com. All right, let's get into episode 16. We are here in Indian Creek, Bears Ears National Monument. 
and I'm sitting here with my good friend, Mike, the mayor, Shaw. Um, how's it going, Mike? It's going well. Right on, brother. Um, so I kind of want to start this conversation with another exchange I just had with someone that I was telling you about the other day. Uh, I was connecting our good friend, Ben Johnson, with this guy, uh, Juan, uh, Juan Ramon, I think it's his, I don't know, I'm not sure if he goes by two names, but he's a Costa Rican climber, super cool dude. We've just been exchanging Instagram messages. And I hooked him up with Ben because Ben was going to Costa Rica and the climbing there, I think, is just getting started. So I was like putting him in touch with the local. And I'm like, yeah, I've been climbing with Ben for 20 years, 20 plus years. And the guy kind of replied back. He's like, whoa, what was it like then? <laughs> you know? And I don't, I don't really think of us as climbers that are the old school climbers, but we actually are, especially from the ex explosion that our sport has seen. If you're in your mid forties and then the fatality rate of climbers and outdoor adventures in general, but we're in our mid forties, we are kind of old school and uh, it's, it's cool that we're still out here doing it. You know, I feel like it's a different version of old school. I mean, old school when we were getting into climbing was really old school. <laughs> you know? It was, but and those guys were still around, you know, like oh, yeah. the yeah. Royal Robins. I mean, Yvonne Chouinard's still around. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, it did seem like they were coming out of a black and white um, book where we're like, we've, we we're kind of living in the same world that the new climbers are living in, but kind of not. I mean, well, they were making the mold. Yeah. And so we yeah. had something to step into, but it has morphed dramatically I mean, if no, in no other area than at least the area of, of equipment development and advancement. Totally, totally. Um, so, Mike, you're one of my, and I'm also, we're also sitting here with Dane, Dane Blaze. Uh, he's also a character in the book. Uh, he might chime in with some questions, and we're going to do an interview with Dane as well. But I got to get you while you're here because. Um, our paths cross in the creek, but it's usually once or twice a year. Where with Dane, he's uh, a little bit more. So you, you're you're kind of elusive. So I had to I had to sit down with you <laughs> while I could. Um, but we are creek friends. Yeah. We met in the creek, and I feel like I have a certain amount of friends. Um, like Dane and I, you know, met in Gunnison, and then Adam, who just left, uh, I knew him from the Gunnison area too. But we our friendship is based out of this place, and it's based out of an era where the creek was quite a bit less crowded um, than it is now. Like right, but kind of right before the, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at the numbers, I think the government has the numbers of, it steadily increases every year of how yeah. many, how many climbers come out here. But we were before, uh, we were in an era where, before a big boom happened. Um, what are you, what are your like fondest memories of, of that era of, you know, we, we threw a lot of, we met over Creeksgiving, you know, yeah. and uh, what are some of your, your memories of that era of kind of their, the 2000, the early 2000s into the early 2010s or whatever we're calling that decade? Uh, I remember one night sitting in the back of Timmy's pickup truck with our friend Dave playing Scrabble <laughs> as we got probably a foot and a half of snow and it was when you could still camp in those cottonwoods across from newspaper rock and we were sitting just back in one of those campsites we're like well maybe it'll clear up and we went outside we had to shovel the trucks out in the morning like it was grim but that was an amazing night yeah and amazing night. it's um i'm sure you got a million memories like that but our creeks giving shenanigans if you will um kind of started with and we were talking about this earlier, but the weather 
you know, Indian Creek, the land we call Indian Creek, it's part of Bears Ears National Monument. This place is uh, has a lot of moods. Yeah. And like you said, in, in around Thanksgiving time, it can be the coldest, moodiest, or it can be splitter and like you can't believe you're climbing in a t-shirt in late November, early December. But what really, I think, formed our group's friendship, because I think it was kind of interesting because we had a crew from Gunny and then... Tim folks kind of crossed into your crew from like Lander and Knowles and that community. Yeah. But our, our crews, we just kind of formed a bigger crew, but like it, it seemed like there was one year where there was more of our friends from Gunnison. I think it was that famous for us, famous 2008 year where we started the Turkey trot race and yeah, Super Bowl we had a huge tent set up with all the tarps overhead. And it just rained for days on end. It rained for days on end and we didn't bail. And that was also probably in the days of before you really, really check the weather, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just like, well, whatever, we'll go down and we have a lot of beer and stuff. But that year started us, um, with the turkey trot running race in Super Bowl, which was fun as hell. I think we did that from 2008 to like 2012 or something. And as our parties got bigger, um, but that was that that cemented my love for the creek. In uh, our group of friends, was like, well, even if we can't climb, you know, it was just like things came out of nowhere. Like Sean had some prizes um, that he just busted out, and then some somebody had costumes, and like all of a sudden, you know, you can't climb and it's all rainy, and you could just drink all day, but. You know, let's let's do something fun. Um, but our traditions kind of merged too, because before that, you had been camping in Super Bowl and you were cooking turkeys in the dirt, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike is a master. He's a renaissance man. He's kind of like the climber uh, Ron Swanson from from Parks and Rec, <laughs> <laughs> which I think I've called you that in person before. But uh, tell us a little about your art of cooking turkeys in the dirt. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of fun. We, uh, when I was a little kid, my dad used to cook pigs that way once a year. Okay. We did it a couple of times anyway, and uh-huh. I remember doing it. And the first year that we did Thanksgiving up here, we did Thanksgiving in a can. So everything <laughs> that we ate had to come out of a can. Yeah, we had, like, yeah, we had two dozen pickled eggs in a can. Oh, like the pickled whole, eggs. Whole yeah. can chickens and, you know, cranberry sauce in the can. And it was disgusting, but it was a lot of fun. And the next year... I basically was like, well, why the hell aren't we cooking these things in the ground? So we started, and there were a lot of, uh, we, had, we had some missteps in there, like don't put, try and put four birds in one hole, and mm-hmm. don't put them in when they're frozen. But I think we've got it pretty well worked out at this point. And it's it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and I think that's why we started calling you the mayor, was it you, you know, once, you know, our creek's giving traditions continued and we kind of peaked with having some really big fun parties in Super Bowl and then we were like kind of got a little bit older and people started having kids and we were like all right let's tone it down on these massive huge parties but um, it's a work of art because you're around camp you know like the night before you dig the holes and uh, and of course you got to do this in a environmentally responsible way you shouldn't go digging where there's crypto you know but out, out here in the desert there's plenty of washes and there's plenty of places you can environmentally uh safely dig a dig a hole and you're an outdoor educator as well so you've you're you're dialed on your environmental uh practices but if you've never seen this it's beautiful and uh the the holes get dug the night before right yeah what are you looking for in a hole when you're digging a hole to cook a turkey in in the in the dirt you know a little bigger than whatever the turkey pan's gonna Uh gonna be and uh and deep enough so you can get about 10 inch coals in the bottom without uh without having the turkey pop out of the top 
Yeah, and and these things are delicious. They cook all day. Yeah. Yeah, and vegetarians might be cringing at listening to this, but <laughs> we've also done a tofurkey before. Mark Grennan, right? Yeah. Had a tofurkey one year. Um, but it, they're really delicious, and so Mike kind of earned the the nickname as the mayor. And uh, I've never asked you about that. What what does that nickname mean to you? Um, I think for the listener who doesn't know you, Mike's the guy who's around, you know, especially on that Thanksgiving day when we had so many years. He's just taking care of everything, taking care of camp, doing it in a quiet way, and just kind of being a leader without being like, hey, I'm the leader. You know, you're just taking care of business. But what what does the mayor, what does it mean to be the mayor to you? <laughs> or have you never thought about that? I haven't really thought about it. Uh, I don't know. I just keep doing what I'm doing. and. It's uh, I enjoy being out here as much for the climbing as for the scenery, as for the friends, as for the memories, as for the memories that we're making. I mean, it's this place is amazing all the way around. So, for me, if I'm hanging back in camp and taking care of stuff, it's fun to see everybody come back and have big potluck dinner and just get a chance to see everybody hang out here about what everybody else been doing during the day. Yeah, yeah, totally. And Mike's obviously a person. If you you put him on the spot to talk good about himself he'll have a hard time doing it because he's such a humble dude <laughs> um but the uh the climbing out here you you seem to you love the climbing but you are someone who you're also out here you know talking about being like a renaissance man you're out here taking photos you're out here cooking turkeys in the dirt <laughs> you love this place in and, and i think a lot of climbers i think i'm one of these climbers that kind of the obsessive type that like have to climb you know have to get this many pitches in you know I get worn down and tired, but I always have to have an agenda. But you are perfectly content and happy in a in a variety of ways out here. And what what do you think, you know, a lot of times I try to gear questions toward someone who's learning how to appreciate a, a landscape or learning how to interact with the landscape. Um, what is it that you've learned over the years about this place? And, and why do you keep coming back here for, you know, 20 plus years? I think southern Utah in general has just always fascinated me. The Colorado Plateau and its geologic history is absolutely amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those places that you could spend lifetimes here. I mean, from this campsite walking, you could spend lifetimes and never see all of it. All of the folds and cliffs and hidden ruins and all the stuff that's out here to find, all the stuff that's out here to see. It's just, it's always a different adventure. And you were talking about the moods earlier, the moods of yeah. weather out here. Yeah. I mean, we've had, just on Thanksgiving Day over the years, it's been everything from a high of four degrees to, you know, sunny and 70. Yeah, on the, yeah. On the same day of the year. Bringing it back to turkeys, there was that year, it was so cold, it was probably, yeah, there was nights where it got down, you know, probably negative 10 or something. Oh, or, yeah, we had... And eggs, everything froze. Eggs froze solid <laughs> inside <laughs> our cooler with no ice in it that yeah. year. And well, that year there was, there's always like crease giving miracles, we call them. But one year we were in Super Bowl, it was super cold, but still 40 some people had rallied. And the turkeys didn't cook all the way, right? Yeah. So it was so cold, the turkeys didn't cook. And we're like, what are we going to do? And then randomly these guys showed up with a pony keg and a turkey fryer. Yeah, a deep fryer. That <laughs> and was... a deep fryer. <laughs> and saved the day. Um, so the many moods of of this place. We are we're recording this, and you might be able to hear some wind and a, a barking dog in the background. That's Hope, the Zine dog. She's a little fired up without something to do right now. 
Um, but we're back here a little bit back uh, Davis Canyon, which is one of our favorite, more remote places. What would you say your favorite mood of the creek is? Springtime a little later than now when the cactuses are starting to bloom and you get those sporadic rain showers. And if you can get those happening right when the sun's going down, you get kind of that golden hour light and rainbows and dark clouds and bright cactus flowers. It's just magical time in the desert. And the smell. Oh yeah, the smell after rain in the desert is amazing. Out here too, the year of the mog, some of the my favorite photos I've ever taken out here were during that year, the black and white with the just heavy cloud cover and all the snow and everything being wet. And when Mike says Mog, he's talking about this year. It was 2013 and we called it the Mog year because it was a mixture of mud and fog. And it was a steady like 30 degrees every day, terrible climbing conditions. And there was this pit in Cottonwoods, in the Cottonwoods campsite, um, that was <laughs> full of like... I don't even know how deep of water, well, but you could have put a boat in that. Thing. You could have put a boat in it, and people kept driving into it. We like we would mark it off with caution tape. Somehow somebody had caution tape or something like that, maybe some flagging, and people just kept driving into this ditch. And then there was a couple of our friends that were just situated there. One guy, I think his name was Jimmy, right? Yeah, Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy, guy. Jimmy guy, whatever. Where you at, Jimmy? If you're if you're out there, <laughs> give us a shout. <laughs> um, he had a van with a winch. Yep. And he was just hauling people one by one. And then our good friend Andrew Kubik was also hauling. He's a mechanic and just an all-around generally <laughs> handy guy. And he was he was hauling people out of this yeah. ditch. So it's like you never know. Yeah, Thanksgiving could be perfect, T-shirt weather, and then the mood changes. And all of a sudden, your vehicle's stuck in like five feet of water. <laughs> well, we just had trucks lined up out there sitting on the tailgate watching people get winched out of that hole that we just told them not to drive into. It was a pretty hilarious morning. Yeah, the people did not listen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, something I've written about in, um, especially the desert, you know, I kind of made a mental shift of making sure my writing was advocating for something very specific. Mm -hmm. I'm very passionate about this land becoming uh, protected land, you know, Bears Ears National Monument, which the Indian Creek Corridor is part of that. But it, it has a, you know, Bears Ears National Monument has a much bigger contextual meaning with um, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, um, all the Native American tribes that came together to protect it. And then they worked with recreational groups, because you love this land so much, what does it mean to you that it, that it is protected for, for future generations, that they can experience this as well? Like, what is that, specifically the National Monument Declaration, what does that mean to you as a, a climber and photographer and, and lover of this place? I don't feel like I can address that question properly without addressing my love of being an outdoor educator. Yeah, yeah. Being so you're, Mike is... Um, you, you work with high school students, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're a high school educator in, in Albuquerque, and, and you spend a lot of time taking your students out here, too, just for, for context for the listener. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I grew up doing this stuff. I, I feel like it's meant so much to me in so many different ways that are hard to describe over the years. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, it's just been a, a huge part of my life, and being able to share that experience yeah. with, uh, with, you know, young adults... Is uh, is amazing to yeah. to watch their eyes light up and be like, wow, I lived this close to so many amazing things, and I never had any idea. 
to see them gain a sense of self-confidence yeah um and it's you know a sense of of wonder about their landscape you know that their environment the landscape that they're in how they're interacting with it um so that is has become a big part of me yeah and yeah. i've spent a lot of time taking kids out to various areas around here i mean here to indian creek over to robber's roost in various areas and, uh, and those kids you work with just <laughs> interject a little bit. They're so freaking smart. I remember you had me come out to uh, to speak with them to like talk about being a writer. And, and you know, it took me I, I didn't start my career until I was about 30 um, as, as taking it seriously. But, you know, these are 17 year olds that are like, I'm going to be a doctor and this and that. And I'm like, oh, you guys are like smarter than I am. You know, uh, you're almost like, well, maybe you should take a year off. You're, like, you're a little <laughs> ambitious. But um, the, the students you work with are extremely if, if any of them are listening, which I'm sure they will listen to this, they're very, very bright. Yeah, um, they're, and they're incredible. It, may, it gives you hope for, you know, the youth. <laughs> but, yeah, um, just wanted to, to add that of, of just the high, the like, how intelligent the students you are, are working with. They're amazing. Yeah. All the way around. And being able to get kids like that that are bright and are motivated and, you know, out into this environment and, and develop a sense of feeling for it and yeah. through interaction with it, yeah, um, you know, that's a whole nother, hopefully a whole nother generation of people that are willing to fight for it. I think you're right, and, yeah. And yeah. the areas that we go to and, the you know, the things that we're, we're able to see and in my personal interaction with this this landscape you know finding new things all the time after 20 years just walking yeah someplace 200 yards from maybe where i'd walked before and finding something i never knew existed that the idea that we can help protect that kind of of heritage in this landscape mm -hmm. through uh the expansion of bears ears or at least bringing it back to what it was the original yeah, yeah there's yeah. there's some definitely some um politics involved um, that we won't dive into, but it has been um, created and then reduced. Um, but now it's looking like it it could it, it could be it could unfold forever because it says Utah and, and public lands in Utah are much more contentious than say Colorado or or New Mexico. But yeah, it 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 is this area is protected, but it, it would be more protected with the full restoration of the original boundaries of Bears Ears National Monument. You can Google yes. it and look at a map to see what these true boundaries are, but it's yeah. quite, you're like you're talking about a place you've been for 20 years um, coming to, uh, of Indian Creek and just walking around another corner and finding something, and then you open your eyes to how big this landscape is. It's oh, just yeah. lifetimes and life, like if you had five lifetimes, you couldn't see it all, you yeah. know? I yeah. mean, from here, basically all the way over to the Henry Mountains. Right, is, yeah. You're one of the most prolific photographers for the climbing zine, and you actually have an idea right now that I've I need to pay attention to. If anybody who's listening who is frustrated of how hard it is to get a hold of me about stories, I'm sitting here with someone I've worked with since day one for the climbing zine, and, and sometimes it takes us months to get something going. Um, so if you're if you're mad at me for ignoring your email, email me again. But you are one of the most prolific photographers um, for the zine. If you thumb through, um, you you have you know kind of waves of, you know you'll have a few issues where you don't contribute, but then we get back on together and, and and get something in there. But in volume seventeen, I quoted an exchange that we had one morning after going to see a presentation at the International Climbers Festival in Lander. 
And it was awesome to be in Lander with you because you lived in Lander. And it was kind of funny. We were like walking around at night and you're like, this place is supposed to be here. Let's go check it out. And it didn't, you know, you hadn't been there in a while and there was a new, new restaurant there or something. And it's kind of just, it's cool. Always cool to be in, in towns where people have lived for a long time. But, um, Kitty Calhoun gave a presentation. Um, it was a great, you know, their lineup. If you ever get a chance to go to the Climbers Fest, definitely check out that keynote speaker night. There was a Kitty Calhoun presentation. She was talking about all this alpinism and me as a, a guy who likes to be in his tank top and warm and climbing and really is not good with cold. I was like, oh, my God, that looks terrible. And then you were kind of like, that looks like my greatest dream, you know, like going to the Himalaya. And I know you've been to the Himalaya to climb mountains, but in that, you know, maybe in a more articulate way that I, that I quoted you, but it was one thing that was like, this was my worst nightmare and this is your biggest dream. Yet we're both climbers. We're both sitting here. We're part of this community. And, um, yeah, would you like to, uh, just talk about a little bit about your love for, for cold mountains and just kind of for your love of the diversity of climbing. Cause you'll climb a splitter crack. Um, you were getting nice and worked on and off with yesterday up oh, at the yeah. cave wall, which is awesome to see that you and Dane. And, but you're also someone who would go slog, um, up a mountain in, in the Himalaya for, God knows how many days. Well, while I was over there, I wasn't. We weren't doing any peak climbing. I was working over at KCC, but we didn't. We didn't climb any peaks. Yeah, you were. What was the name of that? Uh, Kumbu Climbing Center. Kumbu Climbing Center. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about that before we dive into your your love for for alpinism. So the Kumbu Climbing Center was set up by uh, uh, Jennifer Lowe and Conrad uh-huh. Anker. Yeah, yeah. And um, after Alex died, yep, over there on Chishpangma. Yeah, um, he had a, a really uh, deep respect for and and love of the the people of the well all of Nepal, but in the Kumbu Valley where he spent a lot of time climbing. Yeah, and so the folks that are over there are amazing. Just an amazing culture. Um, everybody I had the opportunity to interact with over there was phenomenal. Um, but they uh, they set the foundation up to help train um, high altitude workers in Nepal in better safety practices. Mm-hmm. Um, they teach them some uh, basic wilderness first aid. They they do rescue skills with them, and uh, and it's a great opportunity to give them skills that that they didn't necessarily start with. You know, you think about guides in this country and people that are doing that kind of work. They get into it because they love the sport. And then they eventually turn it into a, you know, a job. And over mm-hmm. there, it's a great paying job, but they don't mm-hmm. necessarily start with the skills. Mm. So the mortality rate amongst the Nepali people that work in that industry was pretty darn high. Yeah. And Alex saw that and was trying to work to, to correct it. And then uh, Conrad and Jennifer kind of ran with that. And they've got a whole big school over there in Fort Say. And I was really, uh, really fortunate to have been asked to go over there and, and do some teaching for him. So mm-hmm. that's what I was doing while I was over there. And you probably saw a lot of mountains you wanted to climb. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can't look anywhere without seeing a peak over 20,000 feet in most of those villages. Wow. And so, like, someone uh, as me who hates being cold, and I, I get it, you know, it's like it's it's so interesting that within the realm of climbing, you see things from the outside, and you're like, how could anyone do that? But then, you know, being on a big wall is, is not – it, it has the same heart as as climbing a big mountain, but like what what about it makes you love it so much? I like to suffer. <laughs> I, I, I I blame it on wrestling. Yeah. Oh, the wrestling. A lot of good climbers were wrestlers. 
but it's, it's true. There's something about it. I mean, yeah. I'm not a super strong rock climber. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a, a, a super good alpinist by any stretch of the imagination either. But I do enjoy being in the backcountry and going up peaks and, you know, having there's just so much more that you have to keep in mind you're looking at snowpack and rockfall and when the sun hits something and what you know is happening with the weather in the afternoon and are there storms coming through and it's just a bigger puzzle to figure out interesting Maybe that's yeah. part of the attraction too yeah yeah i could see that and i mean you are like i called you i jokingly called you a renaissance man but we're both kids from illinois and i think we both had maybe issues in school which I think we, the climbers fit, a lot of climbers fit this <laughs> yeah. ragtag. And I know climbing is, is not all climbers fit this mold of, you know, kind of not finding their way until, and I don't know if this is true for you. It, it definitely was for me, but what, uh, when, when did you first like come out West from Illinois? Uh, 1996, I think. And you, but so you went to college in Illinois, or did you come? No, in northern Wisconsin. No, so you I'm, went to college in Wisconsin. Gotcha. Yeah, up on yeah. The South Shore Lake Superior. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you came out to you came out west after college. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And did you know right away you were gonna like be an outdoor educator or? Oh yeah, that's what yeah. my degrees in. Okay. Yeah. I think yeah. I had that figured out long before I realized you could actually do it and make a living. Hmm. It's so funny because I went to college thinking I would be an outdoor educator, rock climbing instructor, and then I did that for like six months and it wasn't for me, you know? Um, so is that how you got out west basically was was being an outdoor educator? Uh, yeah, that's ultimately how I wound up. Yeah, yeah. Was it Lander that you first landed at? or? Uh, I was in Bozeman for a little bit. Okay. And then I went down to Lander. Yeah, and then I was in Lander for a while, and then I was in Salt Lake for a brief period of time and then landed in Albuquerque. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And what, I mean, what did you love the most about that era of like, cause you worked for Knowles for what, 10 plus years, right? I did 14 years of field work for them. And I think my biggest years, my biggest years were like 40 weeks in the field a year. And then, uh, yeah, that got a little much. I went down to Albuquerque after seven years of full-time field work and uh-huh. then I worked another seven years in the field. And I still do some uh, wilderness medicine instruction for him. Uh huh. And what I mean, what was your favorite part about that era of your life? I mean, it's unbelievable to be able to spend you know forty weeks out of every year in remote places doing fun things like climbing mountains or climbing rocks or scrambling around underground in caves. Or you got to work with some really cool students who were fascinated by what you do. I mean, I love I love education. It's so much fun seeing people discover new things and finding out things about themselves and that's it's incredibly rewarding yeah so yeah um having the opportunity to do that in remote places see new things for myself and a lot of times learn right alongside them was totally was there i guess what i'm trying to get at in 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 one sense was there do you see like a type of student? Cause I know we talked about some of your students that are just, there's always going to be the rock star overachievers and they're also like good at stuff at the outdoors. But like, is there transformations that you saw in certain students that maybe kids were like, things weren't working out in regular school. And then you, you see the outdoor classroom being used. And like, do, do you see that? Is that like a common thing that you see? Or is that just a certain type of student or? 
Because I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I was really that type of student who didn't find his niche until, you know, I went to an outdoor school, Western. Uh, it's called Western Colorado University now. Uh, it was called Western State, Wasted State is what they called it. <laughs> I think that, that's why they changed their name. And I actually worked in the marketing department there for a few years, like, before they changed their name. Like, we got to get rid of this Wasted State thing. But I was very much that student that didn't find – I didn't even realize I was, like, smart until I found the outdoors um, not that I'm saying like I'm, I'm overly intelligent person, but like fi- finding my niche, finding my way. I didn't find that until I found like outdoor education, basically. And, and my mom actually gets credit for that. She in Illinois, she did like a week long um, class. of It was called Outdoor Ed in like junior high. And we got to go camp out for like a week. And that was like the best week. Everyone looked forward to it. But you see that transformation in people of really hitting their their kind of their mark their niche for the first time when they kind of go out into these classes and there's uh, there's two ways to answer that question yeah. so working shorter courses mm-hmm. um you know when you're working with a, a group of students over a month say mm-hmm. you may you didn't know them before that you may never see them again and there's a few of you know always a couple on every course that you, you kind of you can see it click yeah yeah and you know that they're going to be hooked uh-huh. and some of them who are like that was an amazing experience i'm probably going to stick to sleeping in my bed from now right sure and that's yeah, okay yeah. of course you know, yeah yeah whatever do you yeah, yeah um but with the kids that i work with now i i work with them over seven years uh-huh. so yeah you know you see kids come in really young mm-hmm. and just start to you know get that glimmer of this is really interesting and my family doesn't really do this. And then they sort of keep showing up in your classes. And, uh, and that's a really cool experience to see them grow. Yeah. And then we also, so we do this, this long trip at the end of our, the, for the seniors at the end of the year, it's three weeks long and we go out on the road and do all kinds of stuff. It varies every year, but we'll oftentimes get kids in those that have never had a chance to do any of our classes just because of their schedules. Yeah. And those kids too, you can see it clicking them in a short period of time. They, uh, they have to write a reflection paper on their, their experiences every year. And my highlight of every year is reading those reflections. Uh-huh. It just seeing, cause you can, you're not in their head. You don't really, you can judge from the expression on their face or yeah. a conversation you overhear them having with somebody else, but to sit down and read what they're really thinking about it, um, is an amazing experience. It's cool. Totally. And I feel like for my, you know, like I said, I, I was kind of going down a path of maybe being a guide or an outdoor educator. And then I realized I could connect with people through writing yeah. And I, I, maybe it's, it's in my head of just that stereotypical person that connects with it. Um, you know, I've, I've written openly about some of the depression issues I had when I was younger and I know a lot of younger people, people in general feel that stuff and, and go through it, but it's always just so, I, I don't see it directly like you see it through students, but like, I just see it through trying to put out stories out into the world that people can connect with and, but it's the same thing. It's like using nature as this tool. And then it's almost like it becomes your own once you, you understand your place, like how you can interact with nature. And then it becomes your own, whether it's, you know, whatever, if it's climbing or if it's fishing or just appreciating the landscape. Um, but man, it, it must be so cool to see that just as, as your life's work of you're seeing that all the time in real life, you know, where I feel like I, 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 that's such a big part of my purpose with 
with being a storyteller and, and putting out like a podcast like this. Um, but you, you get to see it like hands on in real life. And like, it's, it's so cool that there's so many people like yourself that are out there. Well, I tell you this last year it was really sunk in how much it means to me because I haven't been able to do it during COVID. We were do, you know, trying to teach a lot of stuff online and doing what yeah. we could, but I couldn't take students into the field. We still can't. Hopefully come fall. Yeah. But that's been my life since I was 18, 19 years old. I've been leading trips with kids. Yeah, you said that since then you haven't spent so much time indoors and you haven't spent time out with yeah, I haven't students. spent so much time in one place yeah. since that period of my life. And that, at this point in time, is a long-ass time ago. So, yeah, this this past year has given me a lot of chance to reflect. And being out here on this trip now has been, I mean, I, we had a conversation before, like I was in tears on the way in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Just happy to be back out here because it's been way too long. It's amazing how places can, and I think that, like, ties back to the protection and just and even our community of friends like our being a creek friend like we have bonded over a place and yeah. like i mean 95% of the time i spend with dane is out here and, and 95% of the time i spend with you and the other 5% is usually ca- crashing out in your <laughs> your spare bedroom when i take a flight out of albuquerque <laughs> if you have that place and and it's so cool that there's so many places that mean you know all over the world climbers and outdoor enthusiasts have these places that just mean everything to them and i think not everyone has had equal access to these places through covid too you know i feel like i've since i don't have a job that really restricted me the only time i was restricted to come out here is when there was the big kind of overreaction with covid of like everyone's like don't do anything (laughs) you know don't even go to the grocery store i don't know how you're gonna feed yourself um but yeah they, they like shut down the creek for a little while and in the pandemic wasn't even that bad it was more like fear versus science but that was a crazy time too, you know, Yeah, I felt even in two months of not being able to come here, you know, it was just like almost devastating and, and needing that. I think especially in the modern times, we need this like reset yeah. to, of, of just getting away from, I mean, our phones, you can kind of, you know, these little places where your, your phone will work out here, but it's so nice to have these resets. And I think I'm trying to remind everyone in society that they need resets too. And, it is it not everyone has equal access or even just regionally you know people aren't as close to um outdoor areas as um a lot of us are in the american west you know yeah yeah you know that was covid was interesting because you know part i couldn't come up here because of work or we would have had to quarantine yeah but we were so i just kept trying to remind myself how fortunate that we were you know yeah yeah we both joel and i both uh both had jobs and we were both safe and we had food to eat and roof overhead and you know there are a hell of a lot of people out there that were way oh, worse for off sure we absolutely and that being said yeah. you know it's it was challenging mentally to not have you know this kind of place that i'm used to having in my life so frequently totally and i mean last year was like a year that everyone had a, a hard year <laughs> you yeah. know we were talking about that last night it's like but there are, yeah, there were there were people that were just trying to put food on the table that, oh, that yeah. couldn't do that. But then so many people that lost loved ones. And yeah, oh, it's just, yeah, we're going to be recovering from 2020 for a long, long time. Well, Mike, you're in the, the desert and I think you're an American climber as well, um, which is, of course, why 
you're on this podcast. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to speak with everyone who is, you know, still alive. That is a, a main character in the book. And if you're, if you're looking for Mike in the book, he is the mayor and, uh, <laughs> he takes care of people and that's, that's what a good mayor does. So thanks for taking care of us all these years. Thanks for the, uh, the friendship. And, you know, one thing that I wrote about in the climbing zine book in this essay, silent partners is that the beauty of climbing, you know, I didn't meet you till I was in my early thirties. And I think a lot of, a lot of people in society, they kind of have like their friends that they grew up with and their friends from college where climbing, it's like, or in, in a lot of outdoor activities, like you can meet a new friend at any point, like your friends that were just here, you can like spark these new friendships. And then you can also maintain these friendships through climbing, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm just so grateful, you know, we met in our thirties and now we've been friends for almost like 15 years or yeah. we're still like kind of new friends, you know? Um, but I'm just, I'm so thankful for this place, Indian Creek. And I'm so, so grateful for all of our friends that have like maintained the connections. And then, you know, this is like the most important thing to me, um, you know, other than my, my family and, my uh, my girlfriend is our the the community that we've created around climbing and the fact that new people can come in you know there's probably a, a tons of Indian Creek climbers that know who you are that came to a Creeksgiving party that like you'd have a hard time identifying you'd be like oh yeah the mayor he cooked his turkey that night you know <laughs> but I just wanted to yeah kind of conclude this on a note of gratefulness which is a, appropriate thing because at Creeksgiving um, you know these parties they they were some wild parties but around the fire. On Thanksgiving night, even when the crowd was like bigger than a hundred, we would be quiet around a fire, and each person would get to say what they were grateful for, and that was always my like favorite part of every Creeksgiving, of like just everyone had such profound things, and then you just you're all sitting around and like we are fortunate people, and you know there there might be certain people that like made fifteen thousand dollars a year and lived out of their car all year but that even that is is a position of privilege and something to be grateful for so just wanted to kind of end it on that note of of being grateful for you for our community and uh, I mean even last night you saved my ass with my car wasn't going to start and then you're like oh it's your battery terminal you got to tighten it up you know and you like save my ass and then um dane's car of course when your cars break down in the desert it's always like more than one like yeah. <laughs> one person's car starts and the next person car won't start but then this morning you you uh you towed dane's uh, volkswagen out of here so you're just constantly doing good things and I'm, I'm grateful for your friendship and your time to that the rest of the world can hear uh hear about mr mayor well thank you man i'm i'm grateful for uh the opportunity to do this for the opportunity to have you as a friend and yeah for time out here place is amazing likewise brother all right let's let hope out of the car now all right (laughs) (laughs) all right that was episode 16 of season two conversation with mike shaw thanks mike for sitting down and chatting and looking forward to publishing more of your words and your photography over the years and hanging out at the creek Music for this episode comes from Devin Dabney. Devin has a new podcast out as well called The American Climbing Project. Super interesting podcast. We're going to actually air one of the episodes here on our podcast here in the near future, but I think of it as Chappellian because Devin's diving into some very, very serious issues in the climbing world and the world in general. 
and he does a lot of it through satire and I think he's killing it and he's only at episode three and he's his production is um, just as good as any other podcast out there so be sure to check out Devin's podcast American Climbing Project our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich and signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado I'm Luke Mihal. peace Thank you.